Welcome back to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast that helps leaders and sellers find and tell great oral stories. Hi, I'm Sean Callahan, And I'm Mark Shank. God, what a great uh, week that we've had. It's been very busy. It's um, great to be back on the show, right? It is. It's nice to be sitting down and getting away from the computer and away from the email and uh, <laughs> doing one of the things that I love to do. Indeed. Now, one of the things that's been keeping me busy this week is I've been recording the audio book of Putting Stories to Work. And so it feels like this week's been a very big audio week for me, right? I've had a bit of a croaky voice as well, so I've been trying to get through that. But it's been great fun. I've learned, learned lots of yeah, interesting so, things. So you've spent two days reading your book into a recording device. What have you noted? What has struck you? Uh, well, I tell you what, what I've really noticed is that reading something out aloud is so different than reading it, you know, just sitting in, you know, on the couch and flicking through the pages. It's a totally different experience. And some sentences and some things that you write are really hard to translate into how you say it. It just reinforces that whole idea that oral language is different to written language. And uh, I tell you what, some of those things I said are tongue twisters. Absolutely. <laughs> well, look, I had the same thing just though. I was uh, saying out loud a strategic, a script, a speech that yeah. I'm helping a CEO prepare. And some of the things that were written down, I simply couldn't say. And I had to rewrite because they did not translate into spoken word at all. And in fact, when I went back and looked at those particular phrases, what I noticed was that when I read them again, I actually didn't understand them. How interesting. And so the act of saying them out loud caused me to question how comprehensible, you know, how understandable those things were. Yep. And did you find the same thing with the, with the book? I think so. I, there was some bits which, you know, I looked at it and I was using the $20 words instead of the $1 words. You know, in oral storytelling, you just don't use the $20 words. It's actually more like the 50 cent word, right? It's a very <laughs> basic, simple language that you use when you're sharing the story. So I think that really struck me. And I, I guess as a tip to writers... You really should be reading out your writing aloud and anything you stumble over or you find a little bit hard to say out loud, maybe you should rewrite that bit. I should have done more of that. I did a bit of that, but there are bits where I didn't really nail it home, I think. Uh, second edition. Second edition, <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things that we're doing with the podcast, you know, in terms of just making it easier for people to use is adding the transcripts from all these conversations into the podcast notes. So when people go to the blog post and they see the podcast entries, they'll be able to jump in and see the transcripts. But one of the other things that really struck us when we were talking about this just the other day, that, you know, we've been talking, I think in episode three, we were talking about the story bank and how important that is. In fact, I, I had a nice email from my uh, nephew, 20 year old nephew, right? who said to me, uh, you know, Uncle Sean, I've been, uh, you know, sort of listening to your podcast. I've created a story bank and uh, I've got a bunch of stories in there. And he actually wanted me to remind him of a story I told over Christmas. So isn't that great that, you know, you've got these young people actually giving this a crack at, in terms of being systematic about their storytelling. Yeah. And one of the other things that uh, we're doing to make it easy for people to put these stories into the story bank is we're actually putting a written version of the story into the show notes just like it would go into your story bank. Right. Um, yep. Just to make it easy for people to, to collect these stories and, and have them in their pockets available for use. That's right. You can just cut and paste, pop 
pop them in your story bank and make your own notes, you know, the bits that you need to do to make it memorable for you, right? So uh, hopefully that'll make a, a big difference. So what's today's story? Well, today's story is, is one of my favourite types of stories, and that is the story of the scientific experiment. And the reason I love the scientific experiment story is you get this double whammy benefit. On the one hand, you get the benefit of storytelling, but on the other hand, you get the benefit of peer-reviewed research that backs up your story, right? And this particular example is all around this idea that we're so influenced by what other people are doing, what we can see people doing, right? They did this fascinating little experiment, a simple experiment to show this back in the 1960s. It was conducted by three psychologists, uh, Stanley Milgram. Now, hang on, isn't Stanley Milgram the uh, the psychologist that uh, was doing the research on, on electrocuting people? Uh... Yeah, yeah, he, he was that guy. Um, obviously, the standards for, you know, sort of ethics were a little lower in the 60s. Uh, but yes, he did that. That's a fascinating experiment. But it's not that one. This one's a fairly benign experiment, you'll be pleased to know. So there was Stanley Milgram and then two other researchers who were uh, Leonard Bickman and Lawrence Berkowitz, right? And uh, it's called the street corner experiment. And the way it works is that, cast your mind back to the early 60s, right? They get a person, a single person, and they put them out on a busy street corner. And they get that person to stare up into the sky at a particular point and maintain that gaze for 60 seconds. And then they're recording to sort of see if anyone else is following their gaze, right? Well, with one person on the street corner, hardly anyone follows their gaze, hardly even notice, really. One or two people vaguely look up. But when they put five people on the corner... All of a sudden, the numbers quadruple. You've got a whole bunch of people now looking up at the sky, just wondering what that guy's looking at, but sort of staring in the same direction. But what's fascinating is then when they put 15 people on the corner, they had something like 45% of the people passing by would stop and join them and look up at the sky. We are so influenced by what other people are doing. It's that sort of herd mentality. But there's good reason for it, right? And that is... When you're a bit uncertain, you don't really know what's going on, a great strategy is to do what everyone else does. So when you walk into a meeting and everyone's sitting down, what do you do? Sit down. If everyone's standing up, you stand up. And so we're always looking for those cues. Now, Apple did a really interesting thing when they introduced the iPod, right? So when they introduced the iPod, they knew it was going to be in everyone's pockets. No one's going to see it. So how are you going to get that social proof? So what do you do? You white. White headphones. Exactly, white headphones. And so all of a sudden, because of course all other headphones are black, these stand out. As soon as you see some white headphones, you start going, oh, they've got an Apple uh, iPod in their pocket. More and more headphones you see, the bigger and bigger the social proof. Anyway, that's the little story I wanted to share as an example of a story which is an experiment and, and is backed up by peer review. By the way, I've got the research paper written down. I'll put that in the show notes. Excellent. People can actually go to the actual um, citation. Yep. And of course, that, that links into uh, other research about influence. So Robert G. Aldini, who's uh, a world authority on the subject of influence, social proof is one of the key sources of influence, one of the things that influences us. And we see it all you know, around us every day. Yeah. So let's talk about what worked yeah. or, or didn't yeah. in that story. Okay, great. The thing that I like about it, it's a very simple story. It's got these three parts, which, by the way, we love threes in stories. So, you know, you've got the one person, the five people, the 15 people. So it's a very simple structure for a story, right? doesn't take long to tell as well, which is always important. You can probably tell that story easily in 90 seconds. Yes. 
one of the uh, important points about telling a story like that was when you set it up, you gave us a relevant statement so that we knew why we were listening, which is the research was examining the extent to which we're influenced by other people. Yep. And so suddenly the audience knows why they're listening to this story. Yes. So that, that, was, uh, that was good. But you're right, simple, short, our business stories do not have to be sagas. One of the other things that I liked in it too is that because there's a quite a famous researcher in there, when I mentioned Stanley Milgram, you immediately went, ah, isn't that the guy that dot, dot, yep. dot, right? And I think if you can do anything that connects the audience to a familiarity with your story, so helps them, well, that brings sort of an authority with it. Okay, this is a well-known psychologist who's done some amazing work in a whole range of different areas, right? And there is another way of doing it, and that's not to say who the researchers were and just go, there was some research that showed, right? And it takes, it's the details yes. that add the credibility to the story. Indeed. And so I hear people all the time saying, oh, research shows that. And my immediate question is, what research? Yes, that's what research? right. Yes. Who says? So that's another another good point, those details. Yeah. So, um, What do you reckon? How to make it better? What would we well, do? I'd, it, you know, the first thing that came to mind is, I, the question I was asking myself is, where was this? Yeah, right. You know, so was, it, was it New York or, uh, or London or LA? or? I asked that, myself that question as I was learning the story and, and I thought to myself, I couldn't find it easily, right? It wasn't just jumping out at me. So I thought, oh, well, I'll leave it out. But you're right. I did have this urge, though, to sort of say, oh, this was Manhattan. But, you know, we were talking about this before. You can't just throw in the name of the city if you don't know the name of the city, especially when you're talking about peer-reviewed research, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. The temptation is to go, uh, is to make it up. Yeah. Our advice is that you shouldn't make it up especially if it's peer-reviewed research, because it's so easy for people to go and, and find out, uh, and if somebody actually did know, then the credibility of what you're saying is gone completely because of that detail isn't correct. So please, don't make it up. Yeah. So where would we tell this one? What's the, uh, what's the places where this would actually make a useful story to tell? Well, one of the things organisations all over the world are grappling with is collaboration. Right. And so, you know, there's lots of activity around communities of practice, you know, networks of excellence, and, and these things are, are hard to get started. Right. If you remember back in the, the late 90s with the ACT-KM community of practice, we just didn't have enough people at the start to get that tipping point, right? And so schedule members of the committee to post messages. People saw it and they saw activity. And the more activity they saw... And when we got to about 100 members, that exploded. And we very quickly had 1,000 members. And it was incredibly... It would take you hours to read the number of posts that were posted each day. So it was a big tipping point, wasn't it? Was it was a huge tipping point. But again, it was social proof that people saw that there was activity and that encouraged them to participate as well. Yes. Because it's normal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, social proof is, is really used... And a story like this would be great anytime you're trying to get people to try anything new. Yep. And you're trying to say, how do we get people to try this thing? Well, we've got to show that other people are doing it. You know, we've got to create a, a feeling that there's something going on. You know, the flip side to that social proof element to it is that, of course, if your network is not working, if your network is not working, then um, the worst thing you can do is to go out and say to your community, for example, hey, guys, you know, we're not getting many messages on here. Um, it'd be great if you posted something. Please get out and do something. Because what you're telling everyone is that it's not working. And the social proof is saying, oh, gee, not many people are posting. So maybe I won't post. Right, isn't yeah, that? that's exactly right. As a human, like you're going, oh, there's not enough activity. And you want to go, come on, folks. 
And of course, that is, as you say, that is the worst thing you can do because it just proves to people there's no activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you reckon? What would we summarise this, I suppose, in terms of the key lessons that we covered today? Well, one of them is that experiments, written research, peer-reviewed written research, is a fantastic source of stories. So useful. And that was a good example of that. Yes. The importance of a relevant statement so that people understand why they're listening. Short and simple. Yeah. Right? Less than 90 seconds. You mentioned the three parts. We love those three, so that's another uh, another good thing to have in your mind. But you wouldn't construct it, right? No. No, you wouldn't try to create it if it wasn't there, right? Exactly. Yes. So, any other thoughts from yourself about why that worked? And I think just having those uh, specific details of the researchers' names and, you know, it has that specificity about it as opposed to saying the general research says yeah we don't want to do that yep what do you reckon what would you give today's uh, story rating I'm, I'm gonna give that a seven a seven yep yeah i give it a seven as well i mean it's a nice one to have in your back pocket it would actually serve a good purpose you, you know on the day it's easy to remember you probably forget the names of the researchers but you might remember stanley melgram think that's yeah that's part of it especially if you can associate it with painful electrical experiments he's done maybe we'll talk about that in another <laughs> episode so yeah that's great so i guess we'll finish off that's been great thanks guys for everyone for tuning in to anecdotally speaking it's been great to have you here of course put your comments on the blog post we'd love to hear them and if you have any questions for us we'd love to be able to answer some questions would we mark to respond to the listeners you betcha and if this story triggered any stories of your own we'd love to hear them fantastic so guys uh just keep putting your stories to work and we'll see you next time